This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. This week, got word that the criminal investigation at the Department of Justice into January 6th, as it relates to the fake elector scheme, as well as the the effort to disrupt the certification of the votes at the Capitol on January 6th, it is intensifying. In fact, I spoke with a Department of Justice official who told me the investigation is at a stage uh, far ahead of what has been characterized by the media. The Department of Justice has been under pressure to do more to investigate January 6th and the fake elector scheme and the former president himself. But my sources are telling me that the investigation is well underway. And this past week, we did get signs of that. Before the grand jury, Mark Short, who worked closely with the former vice president, Mike Pence, and others in the Trump orbit. And that's important because it shows that, yes, this criminal investigation is progressing. We're going to talk about Mike Pence in particular after January 6th and how he's reacting to the former president. Why doesn't he confront the former president? I mean, after all, the former president seemed to encourage his followers to go after the former vice president, to pressure the former vice president. Why isn't the former vice president ticked off? We're going to talk about that. Joining us now is Tom Lobianco, political reporter for Yahoo News, also Pence biographer. Tom, thanks for being with us. Hey, Jeff. How you doing, man? (laughs) I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Obviously, you keep busy. And based on what we've seen in the last, I don't know, 10 days or so with the January 6 hearings and those pictures of Mike Pence mm. on the job, ready from day one. <laughs> yes. Those were great photographs if you're running his campaign for president. The photographs I'm re- referring to, of course, were... Uh, were seen during that prime time event, the January 6th hearing, in which uh, committee members talked about the 187 minutes that former President Trump, president at the time, did nothing as people climbed the Capitol building walls, beat up police officers, etc. But you had Mike Pence, who was under attack himself, who was working the phone. So, as I said 
earlier in this interview, Tom, you need to add some chapters to your book, man. <laughs> yes. <laughs> might, might already be working on that. Might, might possibly be uh, uh, doing that. <laughs> Yeah, and all right, so let's let's in all seriousness, let's talk about these January 6th hearings and what this investigation means for Mike Pence. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't appear that he's in any sort of legal jeopardy, but you have his top aides, Mark Short and others, going before the grand jury. What do you think, knowing Mike Pence, probably, I'm sure you know Mark Short and his loyalty to Mike Pence. What does that suggest if prosecutors are calling Mark Short before the grand jury? Well, you know, on the, on, on the one hand, it's 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 kind of this political two-step that, uh, that Pence has been doing around January 6th. So, you know, the, the overarching theme seems to be, you know, Pence himself doesn't want to be involved in it. You know, obviously Pence has not agreed to, nor flatly declined to testify before the committee and the committee, the January 6th committee and the committee members themselves, you know, particularly Benny Thompson, Pete Aguilar, uh, keep the door open for him. But what you have seen, you know, what you point to here is that this is the, 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 the top aides and advisors to Pence talking. And I would just tell you, I don't know if this is a universal rule, but having covered Pence for you know, 11 years now, um, his top advisors do not talk to you without Pence's implicit blessing. And when, you know, when I heard that Mark Short was getting, uh, you know, was giving a deposition to the, uh, to the committee, um, you know, we heard that, and then we then we saw them, of course, too, in dramatic fashion in the in the, the actual committee hearings themselves. Um, that was the sign to me that effectively Pence is cooperating. Um, you know, if Pence was not cooperating, he wouldn't send them over there. Or you you know you might do the thing that Trump has been doing with the witnesses, which is paying their legal bills, and maybe they don't divulge as much when you're paying their legal bills. I mean, that, that was the big thing, of course, with Cassidy Hutchinson. She changed lawyers, and lo and behold, more information comes out. Um, you know, the thing for Pence, and I, I don't know how long he can do this. I don't know how long he can, in a, in a very realistic sense, in a pragmatic sense, in the, you know, in this moment in politics, we sure, you know, we suffer a lot of, BS. I'm, I apologize for for lack of a better word <laughs> in the moment, um, and I don't know how long Pence can continue avoiding it directly himself. This is history, and we're witnessing it. We're living the history right now. Um, it's I, I don't know how long he can just keep on sending out his deputies to tell his story. Yeah, you know it, it is interesting because. Also this past week, he had dueling speeches, is what we called them here in TV world. Um, you know, my day job. Dueling speeches between former President Trump, former Vice President Pence. And I tell you, I'm always surprised by the restraint that Pence shows. I mean, you have these images playing over and over and over again that this this of this mob 
yelling, hang Mike Pence. And then you hear testimony that President Trump said, oh, maybe he deserves it. How do you stay, you know, in, in a way, Pence is still loyal to President Trump. Some of the things that he says, he doesn't, he doesn't attack President Trump. He sort of, he, he sort of tries to thread the needle and appeal to Trump voters, stay on Trump's good side, but then, uh, you know, set his own agenda and start the, the machinations of his, his own campaign here. How does he continue to sort of walk that line? Well, again, this, I guess this, you know, con- a continuation of the last point, I don't know that he can. Uh, in, a, in a, you know, because you know, to the extent this lives within the, you know, this, the cloistered world of political junkies, um, you know, he can kind of get away with that, right? Because we all kind of understand it's like, all right, well, you know, you're positioning yourself, you're tacking, you're reading of the demographics, you know, you're trying to pick out a lane for 2024, even though nobody has declared. Like we get all that. But once you start to put this stuff out into like the broader public, once you know, once people tune in to the January six hearings, people, you know, Tucker Carlson gets three million or four million people a night, and that's a lot for cable news. Uh, the evening news gets seven times that much. I mean, that's Jack Schaefer's made that point in the Politico media uh, columnist multiple times. And when you start to branch out into the broader public, then the broader public sees this and they're like, "Wait a minute." They ask questions like this, you know, it's like, it's like, Hey, wait a minute. You, the Trump almost got him killed, you know, seems to have been aware that he knew, or at least people told him that he, that, that Pence was in jeopardy and, you know, Pence is, you know, angry on the day that it happens, you know, steely determined. That's the way that Greg Jacob described him, his lawyer in the, in the hearings. Um, but then he comes out and, you know, does a return to uh, D.C. with, you know, the dueling speeches with Trump and doesn't get into it. He doesn't stick up for himself. And, you know, that's that's the this, this sort of cognitive dissonance around Pence. Now, that all of that being said, you got to remember what he's running for or what he appears to be running for. And again, nobody, none of the big names have actually declared for 24, yet they all seem to be running at this point. People are acting like it. Um, what Pence is doing is catering to the audience of Republican primary voters that largely does not believe that January 6th was an insurrection. They certainly don't believe that January 6th was an attempted coup by Trump. Um, you know, maybe there's a smaller subset that believes that Antifa had something to do with it. Obviously, we've seen no evidence of that, of course. Um, but that's, you know, remember Pence is still running in a Republican primary effectively. And that's the, the the world that he has to play to. So when he, you know, a couple of things here, you got for him, and I think for you know people like DeSantis too, in particular, um, you read the polling and you see that Republican voters are more or less over Trump. Um, not that they don't dislike him, just that they don't want him coming back. And that's an, that's a growing population of the Republican primary electorate. Um, so when Pence says things in these speeches and, you know, Pence, maybe he's too clever by half for this political moment. He might be outdated. That, I think that's probably hurting him more than anything. 
Um, he doesn't say things directly. He does clever. You know, he does classic politics from like 20 years ago, you know, with a wink and a nod. And he says, time to move forward. <laughs> yeah, 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 I, I get that. But it also seems to me, you know, he, he showed some real strength and courage on January 6th. But on the other hand, he shows weakness by not confronting the former president, right? I don't get it. I don't get it. If someone encouraged his or her followers to attack me or to go after me in the way that they were encouraged to go, I would be livid. Yes. yes. I would challenge that man to a duel. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> the gloves come off. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I don't know if that still happens, but... Um, I'm exaggerating. I'm not encouraging violence. I'm just saying I would not be happy. I would not be happy. And what's worse, my family, you know, they would not be happy, you know. So what what is the deal with him? Here's the thing. You said you know you said something earlier, and this caught my ear and my eye as well. When you're talking about the photos of him, which we saw for the first time, most of them I believe for the first time in the in the hearings, of him taking action on January sixth. And you know, it's that's the kind of thing, like you said, it's like that's political gold if you're a campaign, you know. And I think that his people are still still seem to be struggling with this. You know, he seems to still be struggling with this. But like in a normal moment, yeah, that would be it. You know, you cut that into a thirty second spot, you target it on Facebook and you know TikTok or or whatever you know whatever platforms, and you know you make the most out of it. I mean, that's political gold. Um, but he hasn't yet. And I think the only thing I can think of is really is that he seems to be waiting for the moment to strike. Um, I, 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 and people I talk with seem to thought that yesterday was that moment, you know, Tuesday in DC when Trump's return to DC, obviously he did not, Pence did not feel that way. You had Mark Short, you know, kind of teeing him up a little bit with that, that broadside against Matt Gates. You know, asking why you know a congressman who's you know under investigation for uh, you know a, a child alleged child sex trafficking is speaking to a room full of teenagers um, at the Turning Point USA conference. So his people seem to tee it up, but he didn't follow through. Um, and I don't know. You know, the other part of this too might be it's just not who Pence is. Pence is not an inherently combative person. Um, he does get worked up. He does get angry. And I wrote about this in the book and it's and actually, to me, it really helped me understand him. You know, he, he used to have more kind of outward righteous anger in his first couple of congressional races. And that really, it, it fueled his, his first two runs. Um, but he, he went overboard, you know, he, he ran this ad advertisement, they, they called the Arab ad where he had, you know, this white guy dressed up as a, as an, uh, as a sheik from the, Saudi Arabia, you know, some nondescript Middle East country and, you know, puts on a fake accent and puts on, you know, multiple aviator shades and talks about how he's so happy that, uh, you know, Pence's opponent is, uh, you know, uh, supporting oil imports from the Middle East and keeping America tethered to Middle East oil. And that for him, it was a seminal moment in his career back in 1990. And he said, I'm never doing that again. And he kind of stuck to it. You know, more or less. I mean, really, until he signed on with Trump. Um, but 
you know, he has this like this anger down there. And I'll tell you a story about um, it does not come out often. But when it does, it's it's defining and it doesn't seem to be um, he doesn't he doesn't channel it, it, it seems. Uh, when I was covering him in the Indiana State House in, in 2015 and the RIFRA, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act battle, the, the kind of the continuation of the gay marriage battle. Um, this was obviously just a few months before uh, Oberfell was decided by the Supreme Court. Um, you know, Pence goes on to uh, Stephanopoulos to try and explain how this law, this Indiana state law, will not discriminate against same-sex couples in this state. And he, try, he tries very hard to, you know, say that's not the case and that, hey, you got this wrong. You know, you guys got, you all just please, you know, calm down. There's such a thing as Hoosier hospitality. That's kind of, you can see him kind of doing that in the interview. And I remember watching it and he was just not doing well. And I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> we know from it, he is, Pence is a master at filibustering answers or questions and answers that he does not like. So he is like one of the, I mean, he, that's one of his superhuman political skills. Um, and was, and I'll, as a reporter it is incredibly frustrating, but he's very good at it. Um, and he was not doing that on Stephanopoulos back in 2015. And I was talking with um, Jeff Cardwell, who was, was a longtime friend of Pence's going back to the 80s. And he was the, the old state party chairman. And you know Cardwell was part of the discussions with Pence before they decided to do this Stephanopoulos interview back in the, the end of March 2015. And he pointed out to me that Pence had been really riled up that weekend by the attacks on his children online, people saying that, oh my God, you know, it's terrible that you have a, a an anti-gay father, you know, you know, what's up with this bigoted father of yours, you know, just it's the internet, right? Facebook trolling and stuff like that. And that really got under Pence's skin. And Cardwell and a few other uh, folks told me that when they watched him on Stephanopoulos, he was angry. And he was not in control. He was that's why he was faltering in that interview. And it made sense to me. You know, he's got to tell. Pence has to tell. When he gets really worked up, he does get flush red. Um, and he, in, in the face. And you and you can see that he's kind of like you could see him breaking down on, on Stephanopoulos. And I, you know, that's the kind of thing that's like it's buried deep down in there. And you kind of wonder, like, is he going to channel this? Is he, you know, again, this is history. I, I, the way I think about it is my kid's going to be reading about this in a textbook or on a tablet, you know, in 10 years. I mean, you know, whenever she gets to high school, uh, you, know, God, you know, God willing, we still have high schools in this country. And, you know, things are relatively normal and we don't have further insurrections, I hope, um, that she'll be reading about it. And I often wonder about that. What is she going to see about him uh, in the text, um, he he really does have to find a way to channel this because it's in there. He just won't let it out for for whatever reason. Mm, he is and has become an interesting character uh, in this January sixth uh, investigation. Uh, Tom, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jeff. Let's talk about that case in Georgia. You know, it, it, it's it's the case that a lot of people nationally aren't paying attention to, but maybe you shouldn't. Here's why I think you should. 
Because at the end of the day, that might be the case that brings the first criminal charges against former President Trump. I say that because the evidence in that case is on tape and everybody heard it. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have. Okay, that was the phone call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. Let's talk to somebody who's been following this case from the beginning for 18 months. Tamar Hollerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right. So what can you tell us about Fannie Willis, who is the prosecutor in this case? And she is looking at the pressure that was put on the uh, secretary of state there in the state of Georgia, as well as other state officials. Uh, Where does this case stand? What we're hearing let me just tell you what we're hearing, is that this investigation has widened. There was this narrow focus on uh, the president's or the former president's alleged pressure on state officials to this broader inquiry also involving fake electors. So where does this thing stand? Well, Fonnie Willis is a longtime veteran of the Fulton DA's office. She's been there for almost 20 years um, and really has honed a reputation as just a really kind of straightforward, head down, kind of dots her I's and crosses her T's, this kind of relentless workaholic who is really widely respected among other prosecutors and folks in the legal community. She really kind of came to public prominence down here in Georgia in 2014 when she used what was kind of a weird legal strategy or a very novel one, taking a racketeering law, you know, the same kind of thing you would use to lock up members of the mob, And she used it to secure convictions for about a dozen teachers and administrators here in Atlanta uh, as part of a cheating scandal. They were changing students' test scores in order to, you know, for their schools to look better. So she kind of came to public prominence that way. She ends up running against her former boss, Paul Howard, defeating him very decisively in 2020. She was maybe two or three days into her new job when she sat down, turned on the TV and saw the wall-to-wall coverage on cable news about this leaked phone call between Brad Raffensperger and Donald Trump. And when I talked to her about this, she mentioned just being flabbergasted and kind of praying that Brad Raffensperger maybe didn't live in Fulton County. Maybe he lived in Macon or somewhere else and it wouldn't be her jurisdiction, but she felt like she had no choice to start looking into it. So what initially started with that one event, you're absolutely right, Jeff, has kind of expanded over the last 18 months. And now, as we kind of get a better sense of the contours of this investigation, I've kind of put it into four buckets. You know, we have phone calls that Trump or his allies placed to state officials in Georgia, not only Secretary of State Raffensperger, our Governor Brian Kemp, our Attorney General Chris Carr, our Speaker of the Georgia House David Ralston. You have the fake electors who met in Georgia and and in a sham ceremony in in the Georgia um, Capitol in December 2020. 
You have these hearings that were held featuring Rudy Giuliani, where kind of for hours he spread all these lies and falsehoods about uh, the Georgia elections, conspiracy theories involving vote counting at State Farm Arena. And last but not least, we have um, a kind of kerfuffle in our U.S. Attorney's Office here in Atlanta, where you had the the top federal prosecutor, B.J. Pack, resign very abruptly. And we we quickly fi- found out it was kind of under pressure from Donald Trump. And, and a, point, uh, a successor was appointed, somebody who folks really hoped would find more election fraud in Georgia, but who kind of quickly dismissed that. So what started as a narrow case has definitely broadened over the last 18 months. Given all those buckets that you outline, what are the chances that former President Trump is a target in her investigation? I mean, we don't really know. We we do know confirmed targets at this point are the 16 electors. Uh, but it's clear that Donald Trump is kind of at the center of a lot of these different events that that D.A. Willis is looking at here. All right. Why do you why do you say that? Well, I mean, he directly called many of these officials um, that we talked about. As I mentioned, he expressed displeasure about the, the top federal prosecutor here in Atlanta, Rudy Giuliani, who was at the center of many of these hearings where he spread misinformation. Um, you know, he was the personal lawyer of President Trump and was echoing a lot of the very claims that Donald Trump himself would make publicly and privately on some of these phone calls that were later recorded and leaked. And of course, the fake electors, which as the January 6th committee hearings have shown, you know, Trump was aware of kind of the the plotting that was going on with folks like John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani. And the DA here has mentioned she's open to indicting the former president if she thinks that there was a crime committed and she can prove that. She's also said that she's open to potentially subpoenaing him if she thinks that, um, you know, that could be helpful to her. So like I said, she's known as a very aggressive prosecutor, and she's shown that she's not scared to kind of take these steps that maybe many other prosecutors, especially on the local level, would be scared to do. And as you outlined, she's, she's known as the type of prosecutor who has used racketeering charges in the past, the kind of charges that, well, in New York, prosecutors used to use against the mob. So how might charges like that apply here? Sure. I mean, all that she needs to show is that there were kind of multiple people working in concert with one another to kind of protect an institution or an enterprise. I've talked to legal experts who have said, perhaps the presidency itself could be an enterprise you're trying to protect, or perhaps the Trump campaign too. So if she can kind of pull together multiple kind of events, they're known as kind of predicate acts, ways that the law was broken to help protect this institution, that's how she would go about with with racketeering, um, with a racketeering charge here in Georgia. And now she's the one who brought that up when she first announced this investigation back in February 2021. RICO was one of about half a dozen state laws that she mentioned might have been broken here in Georgia in the aftermath of the elections. And she's even kind of brought it up to reporters like me kind of unprompted. You know, I'm not afraid of RICO. There might be some prosecutors who are intimidated by this. I'm experienced. I did this with the Atlanta Public Schools case, and I'm not afraid to do that here. 
if it applies. And so that's absolutely something to watch. More recently, she used Rico to, to go after, um, you know, the popular rapper Young Thug and, and a street gang here in Atlanta affiliated with him. So she's used it as recently as a couple months ago. All right. So this case right now, a judge in Georgia has approved prosecutor subpoenas of seven close Trump allies, including his former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and members of his of the former president's campaign legal team. So uh, when do we expect Rudy Giuliani to testify or is he fighting it? Well, he's been told by a judge in New York that he must come down to Atlanta to come testify on August 9th. It appeared that that the former New York City mayor was going to try and contest this in New York, which is where he lives. That's kind of how the process works. If you're an out-of-state witness being subpoenaed, you have to kind of go through um, you know, the, the legal branch in wherever that witness may live. And apparently there was a hearing scheduled in July, and Rudy Giuliani never showed, even though he was warned. So after that, this judge in New York wrote an order that said, you better show up in Georgia on August 9th, or else you could potentially be arrested and brought down there. We are expecting him to challenge things. He could cite attorney-client privilege, potentially even executive privilege. And so I don't think this is the end of this. Um, he could also cite, if he wanted, the the Fifth Amendment, his right not to incriminate himself. But we really haven't heard much from Giuliani or his lawyer about this. They've stayed pretty quiet this entire time. So I'll be very interested to see what we hear from him in the weeks ahead. What about South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, who made two calls to the Secretary of State in December of 2020? And uh, was he asked to appear before the grand jury as well? He was. He was part of that same wave of subpoenas that you mentioned, the, the wave of seven. And Senator Graham has been the most outspoken of those seven about, you know, that he's going to be challenging the subpoena. He moved forward with a challenge in South Carolina. There was supposed to be a hearing in Charleston last week. There was eventually an agreement that was struck between the senator and prosecutors here in Fulton County. First of all, that he would accept service of his subpoena, and then that he would move forward with his challenge in Georgia rather than in South Carolina. But in a legal filing, his lawyers kind of laid out the arguments that he was going to make. First, that the U.S. Constitution and its speech or debate clause really protects him from having to testify at all because of what's known as legislative privilege. So anything that kind of touches his duties as a member of the U.S. Senate is off limits. And remember, at the time when he called Secretary of State Raffensperger, he was chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And his lawyers argue that inquiring about election administration in different states and kind of keeping tabs on things was very much a part of his job. That might need to be something that's kind of teased out by a federal judge. Perhaps if if that judge does say, you know, Senator Graham needs to testify, maybe there are guardrails. You know, the, the DA's office can ask about X and Y, but they can't ask about Z. That's an approach we've seen with other Georgia lawmakers, and it's one I'm expecting with Senator Graham, should he be forced to testify. Who have been covering this case for so long 
that you must replay some of these scenarios in your sleep like a nightmare over and over and over again. <laughs> oh, my. There are some cases that I've covered in the past where I wake up in a cold sweat. Is this one of those cases for you? Jeff, I woke up in the middle of the night last night thinking that I had missed a legal filing. So, yes, this is absolutely kind of what I'm living and breathing as we speak. Okay, well, I wish you luck. And keep us posted, even though I'm sure we'll find out when charges of some sort come in this case. I mean, it looks like there are going to be some sort of charges in this case. What do you think? I've learned in politics in general, but especially in this case, that guessing kind of makes no difference at all. There's just been so many moments, especially over the last couple of weeks, where I've just been so kind of blown away by different developments in this case. And really, depending on who you talk to, half of the legal experts I speak to say, yes, you know, here's two, three, four, five different state laws, you know, that she could decide to charge him on. But then there's plenty of others who say, no, 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 no. There's so many legal protections that that a former president um, has. And not only that, uh, even more importantly, is that it's hard to prove criminal intent, which is a prerequisite for a, um, you know, for proving any any crimes were, were committed. And that will continue to be the Achilles heel for, for D.A. Willis. That's what they they tell me. So um, I don't know what's going to happen. But no matter what, it's going to be one for the history books. Tamar Hallerman, thanks for your time. Thank you. Before transitioning, let's call it transitioning to network television, CBS News. I spent 25 years in local news. And for me, the the pinnacle of that march through local news was joining WABC, which is the local station uh, for ABC in New York City. It, it was an incredible operation. I worked with many incredible journalists, among them my next guest, Jen Maxfield, who now is a reporter for the NBC station in New York City. But that's not all she does. She wears many hats. She's also an adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism School. And she's written this great book. And we talked about her coming on America Change Forever uh, about six months or so. Because I love the topic of her book. First of all, the title of the book is More After the Break. So we're going to get into what the book is about. But first... Let me introduce you to Jen Maxfield, my friend. Jen, thanks for coming on the program. Jeff, my friend, it's so great to be here with you, and thank you for having me on your show. Yes, I am so glad that you could carve out some time for your old friend. And so we can talk about this. This You're a first-time author, and, and I've written a couple of books, and you got, you and I talked about that six months ago what it's like to be an author. And I talked about how much work it is 
it is a lot of work, but it's so gratifying once you see the book in print and your book looks great in print. So tell us what it's all about. Why did you do it? Sure. So I don't have to tell you with all your experience in local news, what it's like, the relentless pace of what we do with getting an assignment in the morning, rushing out in the live truck, maybe getting the story changed and putting a story on the air at night at 4 or 5 p.m. And the next day, the cycle begins anew, right? We rarely investigate or report on stories for more than a day. But over the last 20 years of reporting in New York City and the surrounding area, I felt that some stories that I had covered deserved more. They deserve more time. They deserve more attention. And so what I did was in my book, More After the Break, I returned to 10 of the stories that I never forgot. Even after the live truck pulled away from the scene and the names faded from the headlines and we all moved on, I didn't move on. I still wanted to know what happened to those families I interviewed that day. I don't know if our listeners are aware of sort of the ins and outs of what it's like to be a local reporter at this time in history where you have to, you know, social media is a big part of that. But you're going from story to story. It is fast pace. It is more or less 24 hours a day, the news cycle. Um, And one of the hardest things that you have to do as a local reporter these days is knock on the door of a family who lost someone to gun violence. And you and I both did that a lot coming up on the streets of New York City. And I know that in your book, you you revisit some of the families that you met, some of the, the people you met. Tell us about one of the characters in your book that, that really uh, stood out to you. I don't want to say the most, but just, just one of the characters that you feel that special connection to? Well, as, as you said, I, I do have 10 stories in the book and, and they're all so special to me in their own way. But one person who's top of mind for me because I was just with her recently at a book event is Tamika Tompkins. And I met Tamika 10 years ago in 2012. She had been stabbed 27 times by her ex against whom she had a restraining order And she had tried everything in her power to get away from him. And she had survived this horrific domestic violence attack. And we had an anonymous tip into the eyewitness newsroom where you and I used to work together that said she wants to talk to you from her hospital bed. Uh, She's in intensive care, but she wants to warn other people to get out of violent relationships, of abusive relationships. And so we did the interview that night and I reconnected with Tamika and and her children who were babies and toddlers at the time and are now in middle school. And I say to her often, she's so brave to have spoken with me that day and trusted me with her story and now trusted me a second time for the book. And what I reflect on with her story in particular is Tamika will never know how many people she saved. She'll never know how many people watched her interview on the news that night back in March of 2012 and looked at the partner they were with and said, I need to get out. I I need to get out now before this happens to me, before I'm stabbed 27 times. And I just think that part of the beauty of writing this book is being able to put these news stories in context 
something we were never able to do on the scene when you're the pace is so fast. But now being able to look back with the benefit of hindsight and say, yes, Tamika did this interview with me and I never forgot her and she really stayed with me. And now she's she's really made a difference in the world to warn other people. And that's been the case in other stories too, where people who have survived some of the worst of what life's had to offer have in many cases emerged triumphant, right? I mean, they found happiness again. They may have had new laws passed to prevent something from happening again. They've they've found justice or or redemption in some way. And and we never would have known that had I not gone back and, and took a second look at these stories. And, and which makes me wonder, um, and again, for our listeners, oftentimes in, in local news, and really in network news these days too, you only get, as a reporter, you only get about a minute to tell a story. Sometimes it's 45 seconds. You know, if you have a, a, a day when there's not as much happening in the news world and you can get a minute 45 from the producer of the show, well, you're feeling pretty good. And so as a consequence, unfortunately, there you do meet people along the way that you want to spend more time with, that you want their story out there, but you just don't have the the luxury of that. And so you have to do, you know, in some cases, what amounts to headlines of stories. And it's, you know, as a reporter, you want more. And so my question to you is, Jen, is that one of the reasons why you wrote this book, that you, you were feeling this need to revisit with some of the people that not only had an impact on your viewers, but also ultimately had an impact on you. Absolutely. It, it, this book was fueled in part by just a genuine curiosity on my part about what had happened to some of the people who I'd interviewed. In some cases, maybe only met them for 20 or 30 minutes before I had to move on and, and go get more interviews to make my deadline. But there was something about all 10 of these stories that I could not let go of. And I really felt compelled to go back. And I figured if I was interested to know what had happened next, that that the reader would be as well. And doing it in book form, you, you talked about the luxury of time. That is such a great way of putting it because being able to sit with families and not have to run out for the deadline and not have to worry about boiling everything down to a 90 second news story with headlines, as you said, it was so freeing and and really i think gives the book so much more depth and and understanding about what really goes on not just for the person at the center of the news story but but for the reporter too and that was part of getting outside my own comfort zone to write this book was was to sort of turn the camera back on myself too and say what's it like to to be with people on the worst days of their lives and and to be a part of their lives and to be adjacent to so much heartache over all of these years. And how has that changed me as a person and a journalist? Yeah, you, you have had an interesting career. I used to marvel at you because, you know, I'm not going to divulge too much to our, our listeners, but I'm older than you are. <laughs> and I say that only because you got to WABC at a relatively young age and you were talented. I used to look at your accomplishments and think, 
She is so tough. She is something. She is unflappable. Uh, because I couldn't ma- imagine. It took me, it took me, I don't know, 10 years or so to get to WABC. And, and it didn't take you that long. And yet you, you showed experience beyond your years, in my view. And I mean, you've been there. You've lasted Whereas a lot of people don't last as long as you have. So what do you think um, has contributed to your longevity in this in that market? Well, let me correct the record on just one small thing. I you're right. I was 25 years old when I started at ABC. That's incredible. So you are absolutely right that I I did get there at a very young age. But to put the record straight, and I think this is a really important message to get out there. Sometimes we focus so much on our careers and where they are now and, and the success and the awards and all of that is amazing. But let me tell you that when I graduated from Columbia Journalism School in 2000, I sent out 65 VHS resume tapes to news directors all around the country. And I just waited for the calls and the emails to start pouring in. And do you know I got zero calls back? Not a single news director watched that tape and thought this person should work for my station. Not one. The only reason that I wound up getting my first job in Binghamton, New York, market number 154, right? The markets are ranked by size. It's the 154th largest news market in the country was because I called that news director and said I was doing a road trip through upstate New York and could I stop in for five minutes? And that was how I got my first job. So I I did move up the ranks fairly quickly once I got that first job, but it was extremely challenging to get it to begin with. As far as my longevity, I don't know. I'm a Taurus. I'm a very stubborn person. I refuse to give up on anything. And I think I've been very fortunate along the way to have great relationships with my colleagues and my mentors, and then to teach and be a mentor myself. And there's something about feeling very rewarded by the work through all these years. And and writing the book has, has crystallized so much of that for me because I was astonished, frankly, Jeff, that people even remembered me in some cases when I called them for this book and said, I'm writing a book I'd love to interview you for. Do you remember me? Do you remember I interviewed you? Sometimes I assume we sort of fade into the memories or, or even are, are kind of cast aside as part of a traumatic part of someone's life. And I realized that, that we do make an impact and the stories we tell make an impact. And it's, it's a privilege and a huge responsibility to tell other people's stories. So I guess I, I attribute the, the longevity in, in just always, always focusing on the mission of the work and trying not to get too bogged down with some of the minutiae. Uh, of the day to day, and why? Why did you want to be a reporter? What was you that? What was it that pushed you into this business? I sort of fell into it, but I'm sure I'm sure you had better planning. Let's put it that way than I did. I just sort of fell into it. What what brought you into this business? Why? I wouldn't say that that my journey is particularly organized either. I was pre-med in college. I was very into sports growing up and I wanted to be a sports medicine physician. 
So when I went off to Columbia for undergrad, that's what I was studying. I was taking pre-med courses. But I always wrote for the high school newspaper. I wrote for the Columbia Daily Spectator. I love to write and I, I really like to read too. And But I never knew any journalists growing up and I didn't see that as a career path necessarily until my junior year at Columbia, I saw a listing for CNN at the United Nations, an internship there. And I thought, well, I don't have class on Friday. That sounds interesting. And I wound up being paired with Gary Tuckman, who's still a correspondent for CNN. And he was so excellent, both as a journalist, he would let me go with him to news conferences and, and write some of the first drafts of his CNN radio stories. But he also brought so much of himself to the reporting and, and he he really did his work with so much empathy and compassion. Gary still calls people to this day. I spoke with him a few months ago about this. He said he'll just open up an address book and look somebody up and call them. And he recently called someone he interviewed in 1995 at the Oklahoma City bombing. And I just reflect on that. And I think he really set me on the path of, of humanism in reporting and, and really showing empathy for the people who invite us into their lives. So that was it. I switched from pre-med to journalism and I became a poli-sci major and I still enjoy doing stories about science, but uh, <laughs> I pursued journalism in, instead of uh, pre-med. Um, I think the industry is better because of journalists like you. On the streets of New York, we call her Jen Max. Um, you know, really appreciate you coming on the program. The book is more after the break. Uh, you know, find some time to read this book because a lot of heart went into it. And Jen, it's, it's always good catching up with you. Jeff, I'm so appreciative of the time and the interest in the project. And I, I thank you for the book advice that you gave me. Very wise. Thank you, my friend. All right, buddy. Take care. That is America Change Forever for this week. Thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull in District Productive. You can hear ACF on Sirius XM POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday. Don't forget, for now, I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America Change Forever. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to America Change Forever ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.